Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Finding Dad Bod, where my dad, Coach Alex Van Houten, plus his 14 years of experience to work for you. You should listen to him. He's pretty beast mode. Who knows who we could be if we could become 1% better every single day. What's up, guys? This is Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. I hope you're doing super well. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 33 of Defining Dad Bod, titled The Skinny Unhealthy Fats. This episode is brought to you by the Better Daily Group. Working hard to become 1% better every single day isn't easy, but it's worth it. Support your journey by becoming part of a community who's also working toward betterment. The link's in the show notes below, along with a coupon code for 25% off the monthly membership, just for being a listener of Defining Dad Bod. I'm particularly excited because the Better Daily application will be going live on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store in just a couple short weeks. Up until now, it's been operating as a web app, which, though functional, is not as convenient as having an application read on your mobile phone. Like I said, the link's in the show notes below, betterdaily.disciplemedia.com. We'd love to see you there. My food for thought for you today comes from our recent workshop in the Faithful 40 Challenge, where one of our participants asked about cheat meals. In our workshop, we were talking about better nutrition, and as you'll see in this episode, our food is much more than the energy we're putting in our body, but affects us at every level, our cells, our microbiome, our brain function, and even our emotional regulation. But they asked me my thoughts, and I shared them. I'll put the workshop replay in the show notes below if you want to check out the workshop in full. But in summary, we concluded something along the lines of, if 90% of the time we eat what's good for our bodies, and 10% of the time we eat what's good for our mood, our relationships, and our occasions, then that's a pretty healthy balance. And if the cheat meals are part of the plan, then they're not really cheat meals, are they? That said, I realize in retrospect that many folks that I work with would love to do that, 90% of the time eating what's good for them, and 10% of the time enjoying what's not necessarily good for the body, but just good tasting and enjoyable and fun. However, knowing what that 90% default should look like, that is, how to eat in a way that's good for you, is very evasive for most people. Should it be a calorie thing? Should it be a food type thing? Should it be just veggies? Should it be just meat? Good nutrition can be a potentially confusing subject. And so your food for thought is this. What does a best nutrition day look like in your life? Have you sat down and mapped out the ideal breakfast, the ideal lunch, the ideal dinner, and maybe a few snack options if you need them? Do you have an understanding of what that should be composed of? 
and whether or not your body agrees that it's a good idea. I realize that while I preach folks eating for nutrition 90% of the time, that if you ask the average person to sit down and map out a nutritionally powerful day for them, that would be a very tough exercise. In fact, I know it was for me once upon a time, and that definition is still evolving for me regularly. Have you done this for yourself? How'd it go? What questions came up for you? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Shoot me a message at CoachAl at DefiningDadBod.com. That's your food for thought today. I hope it gives you something to munch on. Now, without further ado, I'm excited to dive into the science around healthy fats so that you can understand this macronutrient better and feed yourself accordingly. Here we go. Let's talk about fats, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Don't worry, I won't quit my day job. Remember, the macronutrients are carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And I'm extra excited today to talk to you about fats, also known as lipids. Lipids are a very special and very powerful macronutrient, and they have some amazing properties that I'm hoping to dive into today and to shed some light on for you. Here in the first part of this conversation, we're going to dive into the properties of fats so that you understand them really well and that you understand the different kinds of fats that exist in your food and what our body does with those. And then we'll get into a discussion about what role fats play in the body. Today, we'll talk about their important role in forming cell membranes. We'll talk about their role in the formation of hormones and how our body uses fat molecules for energy. My hope is by the end of this conversation, you have a much better understanding of the fats that occur in your diet so that you can make intelligent and practical decisions about what you're eating and how that might be affecting you in your long-term health and fitness goals. And just like in the carbohydrate conversation, it's completely impossible to talk about the structure and properties of fats without getting pretty deep in the science and the chemistry of it. A note to you who like that sort of thing, you're welcome. And don't give me too hard of a time about making this simple for everybody else. And for those of you whose eyes glazed over in 10th grade chemistry, hang with me. I promise I'll make this worth your while and try to make it as simple as possible. So here we go. First, let's talk about some sources of fats so that you can get a clear picture in your mind of where these are coming from in your diet. I didn't start like this with carbohydrates, because most people can picture carbohydrates in their mind. If I say carbs, you think fill in the blank. As we said before, carbs are often a source of comfort food for us in regulating serotonin and dopamine, and so they stick in our minds pretty well. But what are fats? Well, as we'll learn about today, it's actually very hard to lump all fats into one category, because they come in all different forms, from our saturated fats, like the drippings on the grill after you make a good burger, or the butter that melts beautifully on toast at breakfast, to the monounsaturated fats, like nuts and seed oils, or the polyunsaturated fats, the ones found in seafood, like EPA and DHA, omega-3s, I'm sure you've heard of them, or even some of the man-made fats, the shelf-stable trans fats that are created when you take an unsaturated seed oil or vegetable oil and bubble hydrogen through it, changing its properties. You see, today when we talk about fats, one of the things that I want you to take away from fats as a macronutrient is that there are many different kinds of fats, and they influence your body differently at different ratios. And in terms of long-term health and fitness goals, lumping all of these different fats up into one number, namely grams of fat in your day, and treating them all as equals might not be the best long-term strategy for you to optimize yourself. Don't get me wrong, though. It's not just you. We started this in the Western diet back in the 1950s when we created the ability to manufacture products that normally had fat, but we found a way to pull fat out of them. You probably have a few of those things in your refrigerator or your pantry right now. Fat-free yogurt and milk, 
ultra-lane beef, and low-fat cookies and chips. I hope after today, when you see labels like that, you ask yourself if you're missing out on something important when you eat that product. More on that later. So you might ask, okay, okay, Alex, if there are so many different types of fats with different properties, then why do we lump them all into one category? I mean, what makes a fat a fat? Here comes the chemistry part. Simply put, the fatty acids that we use in our body are digested from what's called a lipid. A lipid is just an organic molecule that doesn't dissolve very well in water. Essentially, they're made by long chains of carbons connected together with lots of hydrogens surrounding them. The long chains of carbon attached to hydrogens stores a very large amount of energy, and the structure of these lipids give them a number of properties. First, long chains of carbon and hydrogens store a large amount of energy in a stable form, but once they start oxidizing, they release a lot of that energy. Have you ever made the mistake of trying to light a bonfire with gasoline? Then you've seen the rapid release of energy from a hydrocarbon. Now, the fats we eat in our day are not gasoline, obviously. You wouldn't last very long on an inedible hydrocarbon diet, but the chemical structure that allows gasoline to store a large amount of energy is the same chemical structure that allows lipids to store a large amount of energy. And when combined with a large amount of oxygen at the level of the mitochondria, fatty acids derived from lipids can be used to create a large amount of ATP. And so our body relies heavily on fats in order to be able to store up energy for the future. In fact, the energy density borders on amazing. In one small pound of fat, our body can access about 3,500 calories in order to power different processes. So if you're a well-conditioned male at 180 pounds with 10% body fat, that means you have 18 pounds of fat on you, which translates to 63,000 calories of fat available for you to use as energy. That means all other things being equal. If suddenly you found yourself in a place where you couldn't eat food, and so you had to starve for a while, in terms of energy, you could go about 40 whole days on those 18 pounds of fat. Another way I've put it in the past is this. If somebody wanted to run off all of the fat that they had on their body, and they were an athletically conditioned male, 10% body fat at 180 pounds, then they'd have to run at a fast pace for about 48 hours, or a slow pace for about a week, in order to nuke through their energy stores. What's wild about that is, at 10% body fat and 180 pounds, holding 63,000 calories of fat on you ready to be used as a fuel source, that same guy is probably only storing about 2,000 or so calories of carbohydrates to be ready to use as a fuel source. This has amazing implications when it comes to regulating hunger well, especially after intense exercise bouts. We'll get more into the mechanics of burning fat as a fuel source in our exercise in the second part of this discussion. For now, I just want you to know that one of the properties of fats is the ability to store large amounts of energy among the carbon and hydrogen bonds that make them up. Another fascinating property of fats is that being made of large chains of carbons and hydrogens means that they don't dissolve in water well. Why does that matter in the body? Well, by mass, most of your body is actually water. Estimates range from 68 all the way up to 75% of your actual body mass being water. But having molecules in your body that don't mix with water very well, while being made of mostly water, has some fascinating implications. The most important one is that every single cell in your body is wrapped in a layer of fat. We call this the cell membrane. And the fats that you consume in your diet are actually used to build those membranes one piece at a time. This property of not being able to dissolve very well in water also means that fats require help to move through the bloodstream to get where they're going in the body. And while they're a powerful storage molecule for energy, one of the limitations of fat as a fuel source is our ability to move it from one place to another. 
For instance, everybody knows that there are pockets of fat on their body that are quote-unquote stubborn. For my guy clients, that's often the layer right above the lower abdominal area, known affectionately as the spare tire. And for my lady clients, the fat behind their arms that spills over the top of a strapless dress, known affectionately as batwing fat. I don't make these names up, by the way. People tell me them. But the hydrophobic property of fat, the inability for that fat to be transported by the bloodstream into muscle cells to be used as energy, is partially responsible for fat pooling in those areas and not having enough blood flow and muscle proximity to move them out and use them. So fats are large hydrocarbon molecules that store energy very well and don't mix well with water. But wait a second, Alex. I thought you said fats were special. And sure, the high energy storage thing's pretty cool, and it's weird that they're in a body made of mostly water, although they don't like water, but that doesn't sound as special as you made it sound, man. Nope, you're right. I'm holding out on you. Here's the thing that makes fats so special. Remember I said fats are made of long chains of carbons and hydrogens put together. What's well, a little more complicated than that? Don't worry, we're not adding any other elements. It really is just carbons and hydrogens. However, it turns out that the properties of fats change depending on how many carbons are strung together and whether or not each carbon has the maximum amount of hydrogens on it. This is where we get terms like monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, or saturated fat. And so you can have long-chain fatty acids that are saturated, meaning they have all the hydrogens that they can have on them. Or you can have long-chain fatty acids that are unsaturated, meaning they don't have all the hydrogens that they could have on them. And similarly, you can have medium chains, and similarly, you can have short chains, and so on and so forth. Now, the thing that's very special about this is unlike carbohydrates and proteins, which are broken down into their individual parts when we digest them, Fats actually retain their structure through digestion, and the structure of the fat, when it reaches the level of our cells, dictates how our body actually uses it and what effect it has on us for the long haul. If that doesn't make you consider your long-term health and fitness in terms of what you eat in a different way, then you didn't hear me right. I'm telling you that unlike the sugars you eat, the starches you eat, the proteins you eat, or the fiber you eat, the fat you eat stays with you. Not just in terms of what's stored as fat on your body, but in terms of how your body actually builds every individual cell. Remember I said one of the uses of fat in our body is to build the bilayer, the lipid bilayer that wraps every cell in your body. Imagine if there were fats that were more rigid and stiff and that were easily damaged. Imagine if your cells were made primarily of those fats. Don't you think that you would have different properties in your body and maybe even different health outcomes than somebody else? whose cells of their body is wrapped in different fats that are less easily oxidized, more malleable, and resilient. And it gets even more fun when you consider that the human body turns out to require different ratios of different fats in order to be optimally functional. And so this is what makes fats so special. Yes, you can use them as energy because they store large amounts of energy. Yes, they have special properties and are used to build things like hormones and cholesterol. But the thing that makes fats so special is that every single cell membrane in your body, the barrier that protects the cell, and the surface that makes organelles like mitochondria special and functional, every single one is built out of the fat you eat. And so I hope you can begin to see the value of considering fat is not just a certain amount in grams in your day, but that there may be a qualitative difference in the fats that you choose to consume to build yourself out of that has longer-term consequences for you than just energy balance. So I hope today by better understanding the structure of different fats and the properties they have, that it'll help you to make healthy and powerful decisions that last for the long haul every single day. 
So now that I've convinced you that this is an important conversation, let's talk about how fats enter your body and get where they're going. And then we'll talk a bit more about the actual structure of different kinds of fats and where you can find them in different foods. So unlike carbohydrates, when you consume fats, the bulk of the digestion doesn't happen until the small intestine. Bile salts and lipase emulsify the fats to turn them into fatty acids. And then those fatty acids are latched onto a glycerol molecule so that they can float through the bloodstream as a triglyceride. Now, if you'll remember, in our carbohydrate conversation, I said that carbohydrates have oxygen built right into the molecule, and fats have none. One astute listener pointed out to me that that's not entirely true, that there is an oxygen or two in a fatty acid. And so let me clarify that here. Fatty acids are long chains of carbons and hydrogens attached together. And at the very end, there's a COOH group. We call that a carboxyl group. That's a carbon atom double bonded to an oxygen atom and then single bonded to an oxygen that is also single bonded to an hydrogen. The carboxyl group is what makes that long fatty acid a little more polar so that it can attach to the glycerol molecule and then float around the bloodstream. Remember, fats aren't water soluble. And so without that carboxyl group and the glycerol, then you'd have little bubbles of undissolved fat floating around your bloodstream and that wouldn't work out very well for you. So props to that listener. Yes, there is a tiny bit of oxygen in a fatty acid. However, in order for that fatty acid to be beta oxidized and used in the electron transport chain to create ATP, a huge amount of oxygen is required to release that energy. So triglycerides can carry the fat to cells to be used as energy, it can carry the fat to the liver in order to be synthesized into cholesterol, or it can be carried to adipose tissue, which is how your body stores fat until it's ready to be used. Fats are usually categorized into saturated fat and unsaturated fat. Saturated fats mean that there are no double bonds in the fatty acid molecule. That means that every carbon atom has as many hydrogen atoms as it can hold, and so there are no extra electrons to be used in double bonds. These molecules look straight and rigid. They don't bend in on themselves very well, and so they're generally solid at a room temperature because of the hydrogen bonding. I used the examples of drippings from a hamburger patty earlier or a stick of butter. Other sources of saturated fat include egg yolks, lamb, dark poultry meat, cheese, sour cream, and coconut oil. Right now, there's a big debate on whether or not we actually need saturated fats in our diet and whether they're causing more harm than good. What we can say definitively, though, is that there seems to be a class of people that have a difficult time processing fats out of their bloodstream. And in these people, high intakes of saturated fat might increase the risk of coronary artery disease. On a deeper level, however, you'll notice I use the term naturally occurring saturated fats to differentiate the properties of saturated fats as they occur in nature from the properties of saturated fats that we as men have created. Remember, saturated fats are solid at a room temperature because of the rigid structure of the fat itself. That generally makes them more shelf-stable than their unsaturated fat cousins. And so we humans, brilliant apes that we are, have found ways to take naturally occurring unsaturated fats and bubble hydrogen through them to create man-made saturated fats. The problem with these fats is we likely didn't evolve breaking them down very well. And so what we find is that in ultra-processed foods, where we add partially hydrogenated or fully hydrogenated oils to increase their shelf stability, and perhaps make them more desirable to the taste, then we have successfully introduced a fat that our body really doesn't know how to break down well. And so oftentimes my clients will ask me, should I watch out for saturated fat? And often my response is, if you really care about that, that we have the technology today to genetically test you, to see if you have any of the alleles that might make you more prone to heart disease because of saturated fat. But my rule of thumb for clients is to eliminate ultra-processed foods. 
Wait, Alex, I thought you were going to give me some sexy health tips. Yep, there you go. The number one step for most people to mitigate the issues regarding saturated fat is to begin eliminating partially hydrogenated or hydrogenated oils. And in the last 10 years, food companies have gotten really smart to this whole thing. And so now you also have to look for palm oil on your food label. Palm oil, composed of palmitic acid, has a lot of the shelf-stable properties of the hydrogenated fats I just talked about, but likely isn't doing your body any favors. Are there people who are probably eating too much ground beef and too much butter for their genetic heritage? That's possible, but we'll look at that on a case-by-case basis. In general, if you're going to demonize any saturated fats, demonize the stuff that we synthesize to save a buck. And so then we can talk about unsaturated fats. You might have heard this broken down into monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats. That simply tells you how many double bonds are actually in that fatty acid. In general, double bonds between carbon atoms in a fatty acid allow the molecule to bend in on itself. And so with a more flexible molecule, it's less likely to be a solid at room temperature. If you cook with any oils in your house, it's likely that most of those are unsaturated fats. Particularly interesting in our discussion today about how fats integrate themselves into the membrane structures of our cells all throughout our body is the class of fats called omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. Omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are polyunsaturated fatty acids that seem to have special properties in our body. I want to walk through some of those with you right now. It turns out that omega-3s and omega-6s are extremely important parts of regulating our inflammatory system well. That is, our body's ability to heal tissues and to restore damage done to it. Also, omega-3s and 6s integrated into the cell membranes of our body, both at the level of the cell and at the level of the mitochondria, might change the properties of our cells in our mitochondria. And the ratio of the more flexible omega-3s versus the more rigid omega-6s might actually make a difference in how we age and how the cells themselves function. So you might know omega-3 fatty acids from supplements. I've often recommended fish oil on this show because of the omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA and DHA, that is, eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. There's another omega-3 fatty acid that is actually sourced from plants, flaxseed specifically, called ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, but it turns out it's not quite as cool as the stuff you can get from seafood. Why are they called omega-3s? I guess that's an important question to answer first. EPA has 22 carbons, DHA has 20 carbons, and ALA has 18 carbons. The final carbon in the tail is called the omega carbon, and when you count three carbons away from that carbon, you find the first double bond in an omega-3 fatty acid. It turns out that all the attention these fatty acids have gotten has exposed us all, at least slightly, to some organic chemistry nomenclature. Now, EPA and DHA supplementation have actually been shown to lower C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, and TNF-alpha, which are all markers of inflammation, and seem to affect cell membranes of the people who consume them to be less rigid. It turns out that DHA specifically has some special properties that make it a great candidate to constitute almost 10% of your total brain mass. Fun fact, when you're an infant and you're growing brain cells more rapidly than you're ever grown brain cells in your entire life, human breast milk turns out to supply huge amounts of DHA to allow for that brain growth. And the need for that fatty acid doesn't end there. There have been studies linking fish oil supplementation to lowered incidence of depression and even reversal of some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. But all omega-3 fatty acids aren't created equal. It turns out that while ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, is technically an omega-3 because it has the double bond on that third carbon away from the omega carbon. The properties of ALA actually make it so that our body will use that mostly for energy, 
not for building cell membranes. Now, our body can synthesize EPA and DHA from ALA, but only at a very, very low amount. And so if you're interested in improving the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids in your diet, you're much better off getting seafood sources rather than flaxseed. Now, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, listen to this, you're not completely down and out. The reason seafood has such high levels of omega-3 is because of the algae oil they're consuming. And people smarter than me have actually used algae oil in order to create vegan and vegetarian sources for complete EPA and DHA. So my advice to you, if you care to take... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. It's rather than relying on flaxseed to supply enough ALA to convert to EPA and DHA, just get yourself an algae supplement. But if you're not observing a vegan or vegetarian regimen for yourself, your most powerful sources of omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA specifically, are sardines, mackerel, and salmon. You might have heard that tuna has ultra-high omega-3s as well. However, tuna is pretty high in the food chain. And unless you have a reputable source of tuna that's measuring for a certain amount of mercury, then I wouldn't recommend eating tuna daily. But sardines, mackerel, and salmon are low enough on the food chain that the amount of mercury that accumulates in them is negligible. If you're not a huge fan of fish, you can also get omega-3 from eggs. Now remember earlier I said that egg yolks are actually a source of saturated fat. And so if you're somebody who has the genetic allele that makes saturated fat a problem, then make sure if you're getting your omega-3s from eggs that you're eliminating saturated fat elsewhere in your diet. And then there's the good old high-quality fish oil supplement. If you are going to rely on a supplement to increase your omega-3 fatty acids, then do your research and find one that's not heat distilled. Polyunsaturated fatty acids are easily oxidized. And so if you're going to supplement with them, you'll want to take some that's not been cooked to death at high heats. I remember I had a fish oil that I recommended pretty regularly. It was a little on the pricey side, but it was molecularly distilled. And after my recommendation, a client would send me a picture from Costco and say, man, for the same price, I can get like 10 times that much fish oil. And I would reply back, I'd prefer you save your money if that's what you're going to buy, because I don't need you supplementing rancid fish in your pursuit to be healthier. However, our conversation about omega-3s can't end there. Because like I said earlier, it's not just important that omega-3s are in your diet, but that they exist in a great ratio compared to omega-6s. Now, omega-6s aren't bad. However, it's been estimated that once upon a time, humans consumed somewhere between a 1 to 1 ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 and a 1 to 4 ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. Well, it turns out from a food company perspective, it's much cheaper to cook and season with omega-6 fatty acids than it is omega-3s. Remember I said omega-3s are easily oxidized? Imagine if you bought a bag of potato chips that had to be refrigerated. They wouldn't be that shelf-stable, and probably not as tempting to you either. But that's not the condition you find your potato chips in. In fact, I'm pretty sure a bag of Doritos will outlast me in the case of a nuclear holocaust. Really, come to think of it, I've never seen a moldy Dorito. Anyway, omega-6s are much more shelf-stable than omega-3s. And so when you consume an ultra-processed diet, that is, a diet with a lot of hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated oils from nuts and seeds added to the food itself, then what we end up with is a much different ratio than what is postulated to have been eaten by humans 20,000 years ago. 
Remember I said it used to be something like 1 to 1, or 1 to 4, omega-3s to omega-6s? Now the average Western diet consumes 1 to 10, all the way up to 1 to 30, omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. That is between 10 and 30 times more omega-6s to omega-3s in our diet. And research is bearing out that this is actually changing the structure of our cell membranes. This has already been a very science-heavy episode, and so I won't get too annoying here. But I'll put some of the research articles I found interesting in the show notes below if you care to peruse them. My favorite one is about the responsiveness of mitochondrial membranes that are high in omega-3 to NAD plus molecules. And that responsiveness tends to make them better at churning out ATP, while perhaps increasing the mitochondrial resilience to oxidative damage. I've said a lot of things. What are the takeaways here? 1. Fats are a very special macronutrient, specifically because they maintain our structure as our body builds itself out of the fats we eat. 2. For that reason, in terms of long-term health and fitness goals, it doesn't make sense to boil fats down to just one macronutrient number. Rather, it makes much more sense to evaluate the sources of fat in the structures of fat in our diet and alter that to fit with our tastes and our health goals. 3. One of the simplest ways that you can improve your fat profile in a day is to eliminate the sources of unnatural saturated fats and the omega-3s coming from processed foods, while emphasizing and increasing the EPA and DHA that's coming from your foods. Remember, foods like eggs, sardines, mackerel, salmon are all going to improve your omega-3 nutrient profile while the hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated oils that make up a lot of packaged products are not going to help you with that nutrient profile. And if you're asking whether or not you should be avoiding saturated fat in your life, I would highly recommend getting your genome tested. Personally, I have the APOE4 genetic mutation that seems to make it very difficult to clear fats from the bloodstream, and therefore not only do I have a family history of heart disease, but I also know I shouldn't go too crazy on the saturated fat front. If you have questions about how that specifically looks in my day, I'd be happy to talk more about that, in our Q&A this month in the Inner Circle. Hop in the circle and ask the question. For now, though, I hope you have a much better understanding of how the structure of fats change the function of fats in our day-to-day -day life and how that might affect us in our health and fitness long-term. I also hope you have some practical takeaways on how you can start changing your fat profile today. Now, though, we're moving on to the subject of fats used as energy in the body and fats used to synthesize cholesterol and then hormones in the body. So first, energy. If you've been following my show for a bit, you've probably heard me talk about using particular stages of training in order to ensure that a body, quote, knows how to burn fat as a fuel source, end quote. And while I have reasons for wording the adaptations that way, now's a great time to expand on what I actually mean here. Just like carbohydrates, fatty acids can be utilized to create ATP to power the important mechanisms and reactions in the body. You may remember from our carbohydrate conversation in part 8 of the TrueFit series that they suffer from one important deficiency that limits their use as fuel in the body, and that is, unlike carbs, fats have little to no oxygen molecules incorporated in the actual structure of the fat. And so what that means for us is that while fats have a great amount of energy stored up inside of them, the ability to deliver oxygen to every single cell in your body is a limiting factor in releasing that energy. So when I tell people, that when we start in our initial phases of training, that we're going to do some things with nutrition and going to do some things with exercise that, quote, teach their body how to burn fat as a fuel source, it would be more accurate to say, we're going to get really good at oxygen deliverability. 
so that your cells have all the oxygen they need to burn fat as a fuel source when we go to the later stages of training. As you can imagine, if I say, burn fat better, people are excited and they get on board for it. But if I say, let's get better at oxygen deliverability, very few people would jump on that train. But in exercise physiology, they are exactly the same thing. Without the presence of oxygen in your cells, then your body will consistently default to using carbohydrates, which have oxygen built right into the molecule, instead of defaulting to your fat stores. And for many people, this is a really frustrating cycle, because a body that's bad at oxygen deliverability will deplete the short-term glycogen stores that it has on hand from the muscles in the liver. And when glycogen stores are depleted, you begin to crave carbohydrates. And so the average person who's bad at oxygen deliverability in their bodies is going to be constantly riding a carbohydrate roller coaster where they burn carbs and then eat carbs and then burn carbs and then eat carbs. And then any overages in their diet are shuttled away to their fat stores, which normally wouldn't be a problem. But because of the oxygen availability, they're not using their fat stores very well during the day. And so for many of my clients who have fat loss goals, the very first thing that we focus on is building the machinery that allows their body to move oxygen very well and very efficiently so that it's not a limiting factor in nuking through fat stores later on in their program. How do you get good at moving oxygen? Well, in a word, cardio. Especially for those who are in poor cardiovascular condition, low-intensity steady-state training, which would be like a 20- or 30-minute brisk walk or jog for most people, is very effective for elevating exercise VO2. In the scientific community, VO2 simply means the volume of oxygen that is being utilized by the body. And if your goal is to get better at burning fat as a fuel source, then a higher VO2 is extremely helpful. A higher VO2 means a number of things. One, your diaphragm and core musculature are extremely strong, and you can pull in a large amount of air and push out a large amount of air, which allows you to effectively transfer oxygen from the air to your bloodstream, and then effectively transfer carbon dioxide, the waste from your blood to the air around you. Next, a higher VO2 indicates larger blood volume, so that the blood, which is the conduit that pulls oxygen from your lungs and moves it to all of the other parts of your body, is an ample supply and can be saturated with oxygen really quickly. A high VO2 also means that your heart's in great condition. The heart itself is a muscle, and creating strength and consistency in your heartbeats, we call that stroke volume, works together with the increased blood volume to move oxygen through the body as well. And then, at the level of the cell, there are exercise adaptations that create what we call mitochondrial density. That means more little powerhouses in every single cell to make great use of the oxygen that you're pumping that way. Those four primary things, the strength of your breathing muscles, the volume of your blood, the strength of your heart, and mitochondrial density are all pieces to the puzzle of moving oxygen effectively throughout your body. There's a lot to be said about promoting those adaptations in your body through your exercise program. But since today's episode is specifically with regard to nutrition for a healthy and long life, I'll just post the links to those episodes below so you can explore them later this week. For now, I'll just say one of the common mistakes that I see very often in the fitness industry to promote fat loss is the use of high-intensity interval training with the claim that it raises VO2 levels faster and studies show that you burn more fat longer post-exercise. And while you can find research that shows that high-intensity interval training might increase mitochondrial density faster, or that high-intensity interval training might find you losing fat faster than low-intensity steady-state training, I would encourage you to be careful about overdoing it. 
While burning fat as a fuel source does require you to get better at moving oxygen through the body, and high-intensity interval training has been shown to help you with that, you also have a few other factors in your body that might influence your being able to continue that sort of training. Ligaments and tendons, especially those that are untrained, are easily damaged by high-intensity interval training. Also, different hormone systems are impacted deeply by regular high-intensity training, and if a foundational level of resilience hasn't been built into the body, then it's very easy to overtrain when you skip your base training. Lastly, there are two psychological considerations with regard to incorporating high-intensity interval training. One, you will burn more carbohydrates. And empty glycogen stores often makes you crave carbohydrates. That's not a big deal if you're an insulin-sensitive athlete, but it's a huge deal if you're a person who's insulin-resistant. And similarly, I like to tell my clients that low-intensity steady-state training burns a level of stubborn grit. That is, conditioning your own mind to the endurance of the process. I find that in programs of long-term health and fitness, those that dive in headfirst with a bunch of high-intensity interval training immediately are encouraged by fast results, but ultimately lack the consistency and the discipline to manage this through the long term. Want my advice? Promote the ability to use fat as a fuel source by incorporating at least one to two base training days every single week. And if your body handles that really well, then you can build on that base with some short, high-intensity interval training bouts, starting with one and moving your way slowly up to four or even five sessions per week. Now, I've distilled down a very large body of research into some practical information, and there are many caveats. If you have some questions about anything I've said here, I'd invite you to explore the resources I've posted in the show notes and to drop your questions in our next monthly Q&A in the Inner Circle. It's definitely complicated science, and I'd be happy to help you personalize it to your situation and goals. So quick high-level recap. Your body can either use fats or carbohydrates to create ATP to power the systems of the body. If you'd like to get better at burning fat as a fuel source, that means you have to get better at oxygen deliverability. And at a bare minimum, you should be doing at least two base cardio sessions every week in order to promote strong breathing muscles, great blood volume, a stronger heart, and mitochondrial density. And if you care to take your exercise program further, and maybe cash in on some of that fat-burning machinery that you've built, incorporating higher-intensity phases of training is definitely worth doing after you've built your foundation. Good luck with that. Go move that oxygen. And now we get to the final special property of fats that make them different from the other macronutrients in the body, and that is their important role in being the building blocks for cholesterol. Now, anytime I mention the word cholesterol, I have to say that what I'm about to say is not medical advice. Because cholesterol has been used, especially in Western medicine, as an indication as to whether or not there's cardiovascular disease on the horizon for an individual. It makes educating on the topic kind of taboo. But I want you to know about the role that dietary fats play in synthesizing cholesterol, and then, probably most importantly, cholesterol's role in being the building block for creating many important hormones in the body. Now wait a second, Alex. Did I just hear you right? My body makes cholesterol out of fats? Then what's with the nutrition labels, like on my eggs, telling me there's cholesterol in my eggs? That's a great question. Let's break it down. Well, first, you probably know about cholesterol as your blood measure. If you go in for your yearly, you at least get total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, and glucose measured. Now, total cholesterol is the amount of cholesterol that's actually present in your blood. And the cholesterol in your bloodstream is actually headed to do certain jobs within the body. 
Some cholesterol is actually used to build cell membranes. Remember, every cell in your body is wrapped in what's called a lipid bilayer. That is, fat molecules that you've eaten, which we covered in part one, and other things, like insulin receptors, or even cholesterol molecules, to hold everything together and to perform different functions. Cholesterol in the bloodstream is also used by several other tissues in the body to synthesize different hormones. Testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone are all synthesized from cholesterol molecules, as well as vitamin D, which is then later changed to calcitrol, promoting calcium absorption and strong bones, and aldosterone, which has several functions, one being water regulation in the body. My main point here is that total cholesterol floating through the bloodstream is an insanely important part of upkeeping different metabolic systems in the body, hormonal processes in the body, and repairing tissues in the body. And the cholesterol in your bloodstream comes from two different sources. About 20% of your total cholesterol, plus or minus a bit depending on the source that you look at, comes from your dietary cholesterol. That is, the cholesterol in your dairy products, your eggs, your beef, that have been digested by the body and then incorporated into the bloodstream. The other 80%, again plus or minus depending on the source that you look at, is actually synthesized by the liver. The liver is a very powerful organ, and it can use acetyl-CoA, which can be created from fats, carbohydrates, and even proteins, in order to synthesize its own cholesterol. And it turns out that different genetic factors and internal stressors on the body signal the liver to create as much cholesterol as your body needs in order to function well. Where this becomes a problem for people is, let's say, you have a genetic predisposition to have a large amount of cholesterol created by your liver and you have a diet high in cholesterol, and you have a large amount of internal damage in the body that's requiring an increased regulation of cholesterol from your liver to keep ample amounts in your bloodstream. That's the perfect storm to have a very large amount of cholesterol floating around in you on a regular basis. Is that a problem? Well, it turns out it depends on how your body's actually moving that cholesterol. Cholesterol, like fats, is not water-soluble, and so it requires shuttles, called lipoproteins, to allow it to get from the liver to other places in the body. On your yearly, that shows up as HDL and LDL, high-density lipoproteins and low-density lipoproteins. And while there's a raging debate right now, especially in the medical community, about what's more important, total cholesterol, LDL particles and what size they are, or perhaps more importantly, what ratio does HDL exist in relation to total cholesterol, I'm not going to speculate much here. For our part, I just want you to know, that the fats that we eat on a regular basis are important to our body because they're used in the synthesis of about 80% of the cholesterol that our body's going to use in order to create testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, aldosterone, and even vitamin D. I remember coaching a young bodybuilder who had asked me and a registered dietitian that I worked with to help him get better results. He had just started to cut for a show and we had his blood work sitting in front of us. He was eating around 30 grams of fat per day which for a 210-pound young man is not a lot of fat. And he couldn't figure out why he was so tired and depressed all the time. I was shocked when we got his results. He was 23 years old, and his testosterone was the same level as what you would think a 70-year-old man should be. And when we started talking about it, he said, should I start doing hormone replacement therapy? And I told him that while it was his option, definitely, to add an external source of hormones to his system, I wanted to draw his attention to another number. His cholesterol was 90, and his high-density lipoprotein was 12. Now, if you haven't looked at a lot of these blood tests, then those numbers mean nothing to you. But for a young guy his age, 
his total cholesterol would have been much more healthier around 150 to 200. And his HDL, for somebody who lifted weights all the time, should be as high as 70, 80, or 90. So he had far less than half of the cholesterol required for his body to create testosterone from. And you wouldn't tell it by looking at him. The dude was a mountain of a man. He was the kind of guy you would see on Instagram taking selfies in the mirror after his workout while you were thinking, man, I'd love to look like that dude. But here he was in front of me, depressed, exhausted, low libido, and reported that he hadn't felt like himself in months. After the registered dietitian and I conferred on his case, our advice was to incorporate many more healthy fats into his diet. Won't that hurt my cut, he said. My response was, it's possible, and perhaps you can incorporate these changes after your show. But either way, what's more important to you? The lowest body fat possible, or the vitality of being able to build your own hormones from the inside out. He had to think on that. But a few months later, when I caught up with him, he was in a much better spot and reported that he had decided to incorporate more fats on a daily basis. And contrary to his fear, he was still shredded. My point here is that dietary fats are an important component of creating hormones. And while cholesterol gets a bad rap for being linked to heart disease, it has very important functions in the body as well. And so what do we do with all this information? By now you know that the structure of certain fats is actually a very important part of building high-quality, efficient mitochondrial and cellular membranes throughout the body. You also know that fats can be used as a fuel source, as long as there is enough oxygen that makes it to the cell, and that it's your job to promote that if you care to keep a healthy body composition for the long term. And lastly, now you know that fats have an important role to play in restoring the body's tissues and building hormones as they're used to create cholesterol in the liver. My practical advice for you is to begin journaling your food so you can see what the primary sources of fats are in your day. And then, once you become aware of those sources of fats, to begin working to shift your diet toward a healthier omega-3 to 6 ratio by limiting hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated oils and synthesized oils, like palm oil, and incorporating more polyunsaturated fats. My favorite sources are sardines, mackerel, salmon, and eggs. And when it comes to saturated fats, like the ones found in butter, red meat, and dairy, Limit those if you have reason to believe that you might have the genetic predisposition to have a difficult time clearing fats from your bloodstream. If you've gotten a genetic test done, things like the APOE4 genetic mutation, which I have, would be a reason to limit saturated fats. But even if you don't have those genetic predispositions or a family history of heart disease, you might still find it interesting to become aware of your total fat intake and how much of that is saturated fats. Many of my clients, and my personal household included, find that optimal health and optimal body composition come quite easily from an intelligent and conscious variety of fat intake. Whatever you do, I hope that after hearing part nine of the True Fit long-term health and fitness series has found you more educated in terms of fats as a macronutrient. Eating to get a certain number of grams every day, let's use that information to build some awesome long-term bodies for the future. This has been Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. Until next time, guys, kick butt, take names. The three practical advice and conversations here remain unbought and unbiased thanks to the support of Better Daily. If this episode has been helpful to you, share it with someone in your life who you know it will benefit. Then subscribe to the podcast and leave us a raving review to tell others what value Defining Dad Bod has brought to your health and fitness journey. Finally, if you're struggling for betterment, don't do it alone. We all have a cross to carry, and it's lighter when we do it together. 
Go to definingdadbod.com slash better daily to get supported, challenged, and inspired to take yourself to the next level. Who knows who we could be if we could become 1% better every single day. Go to definingdadbod.com slash better daily today. That's definingdadbod.com slash better daily. 